podcast. I'm MMNM's Editor-in-Chief and General Manager, Steve Madden, uh, and I'm really excited um, for this version of the podcast because our guest today is Kathleen Starr, PhD. Kathleen is the Managing Director of Behavioral Sciences and Insights at Cineos Health. Um, and the reason that Kathleen, part of the reason that Kathleen is here is that uh, we're going to talk about her book. She is the author of Why We Resist. I'll say that again. Why We Resist. The Surprising Truths About Motivating Behavior Change and a Guidebook for Healthcare Communicators, Advocators, and Change Agents. It's quite a mouthful. <laughs> Welcome, Kathleen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm thanks, excited. Thanks for coming to MMM Global HQ. Um, also known as the Death Star in some precincts. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. Um, let's talk a little bit right right from the outset. Who's this book for? Well, this book really is, like the title says, health communicators. That could be people that are writers. It could be frontline health care communicators, you know, physicians, nurses, allied health care providers. Um, anybody that's on the front lines um, uh, helping um, patients and caregivers make uh, medical decisions, as well as um, physicians in this really unique healthcare context of making decisions, which is uh, very unique. Um, and the purpose, really, of the book is we wanted to call it call all the science. We know so much more about why people do what they do. Um, it's a long-standing question that I've gotten in the 10 year I've been in the industry as a psychologist. And what I kept finding was we'd have um, different groups and different clients and read um, a tidbit here or a really cool book, um, you know, and they'd say, hey, have you read Nudge or have you read this book? We want to we want to do that. How do we incorporate that? And I was like, well, it's not that simple. That's just one area of the behavioral science. So what we wanted to do is really curate it into and take all the important kind of um, latest and greatest that's happening in all the realms of the behavioral sciences. I always say that. There's lots of sciences. Um, social psychology, behavioral psychology, neuroscience, behavioral economics and really boil it down into something that um, people can use. Um, and it kind of gives a framework to make sense. It's not a whole bunch of just facts. Right. It's a way of knowing and understanding behavior. What, what exactly is behavioral sciences? Or what are behavioral sciences? So fundamentally, right, asking a couple fundamental questions. Why people do what they do? What are the various influences? Um, but then you get into also cognitive science. How do people cognitively process information and make decisions? Um, all of that, you would say, is within the behavioral sciences. Then really, even in the fields of um, anthropology or um, sociology as well, we know that the communities and our culture right, um, play a role in our behavior. So I kind of clump that all together. Okay. And and I can understand that, that this would certainly be something that a marketer would want, a marketer of any type of product would want to bring to bear. But what is it about healthcare in particular that poses unique challenges or, uh, or, or and um, why is this so important for people 
who are marketing uh, healthcare products? Great question. You know, a couple things. So one, if we look at it from the patient or the consumer side, right? First of all, um, they don't want to be our customers, right? This isn't consumer. This isn't out about buying a car, right? Two, it's so antithetical to anything our mental models about what it means to go engage in something. For example, when's the last time you've agreed to do something and buy something and you have no idea what pre- what it costs, <laughs> right? Most of us, you would not do that. Right. But we do that every single day. Thousands of people leave the doctor's office with a script in hand or it's sent to the pharmacy and have no idea what that what the cost is. Right. Right. Um, on the other things, like the decisions, they're just higher stake, right? Very high stake when you're talking about somebody's health and the decisions and the level of um, complexity in the decisions. And the same goes for healthcare professionals, right? Um, the, the what the stakes are high, right? They're taught fundamentally do no harm, mm-hmm. so of course they're going to be risk averse, and also they um, the stakes are really high for them as well, and the amount of information and learning and that's constantly being bombarded that they're supposed to be making very quick decisions in such a quick time frame. Right. So in the book, you talk about like uh, frictionless experiences. Um, that, you know, when you sort of buy, like when you go on Amazon and you want to buy anything, uh, it's a very frictionless experience. You, you point, you click, um, and next thing you know, a toaster arrives on your doorstep. Healthcare can be anything but frictionless, right? Does that, does that friction affect behaviors? Is that part of the reason why people are non-compliant or, or, or uh, you know, risk averse about going to the doctor? Um, great question. So yeah, it is. We have tons of frictions. We have what functional frictions, right? It's a pain in the butt. How many different portals are you, you know, do you have to sign up for, right? If you have more than one doctor, there's a lot of what I call fun- functional frictions. But also, when we think about it from the psychological standpoint, there's um, emotional and social frictions, mm-hmm. right? The the friction that is associated with um, getting a diagnosis, right? Causing that kind of emotional distress, conflicting with people's need for autonomy, and all of a sudden their life gets turned to, you know, topsy turvy. Um, and there's social frictions um, in the sense of taking care of one's health can actually conflict with the other really important social roles they have. Uh, you know, in terms of, hey, what's most important to me is being a mother or being a professional or being a volunteer. And when what I need to do to take care of my health in, interferes with that, we call that a social friction as well. Sure. It's like an, an athlete who has a nagging injury and doesn't want to go to the doctor because the doctor's going to tell them to not run anymore. Right. right. And taking away something from them. That's a great, that's a great example. Because they identify themselves so, so strongly as being a runner or something like that. Yep. Right, right. Um, you're listening to the MMNM podcast. I'm Steve Madden. My, uh, my guest today is Kathleen Starr, Managing Director of Behavioral Sciences and Insights at Cineos Health. And we're talking about Kathleen's book about, uh, about behavioral sciences. Um, so, you know, the title of the book is um, 
resist the surprising truths about motivating behavior change. Um, great title, by the way. What, uh, because it, it leads to a great question, what, what are some of the surprising truths that you've uncovered in your work? So it's, it's interesting. So the title came from, I give a lot of talks, and one of the things that I'm always trying to get across is, believe it or not, we're wired to resist change. Just That's just how we are. Human beings are wired. and To resist change. Yeah. Now, that's interesting. You might yeah. think it would be the other way around because you need to adapt. So, well, we're good at changing when we need to, but fundamentally, there's a lot that we're wired to resist change. And so, one, to get that across, that it's not that someone is lazy or they're, um, you know, uh, doing something wrong. It's just they have to kind of fight this natural tendency to resist change, right? So that's that's why I kind of call it that. Um, and there's several, we boiled it down to several principles, right, that describes, on one hand, why we're wired to resist change, right? What are those fundamental human truths mm -hmm. that are barriers? But on the other hand, they also represent the triggers or ways to activate change. They're one fundamental theme in psychology and behavioral science is that there's always competing forces, mm -hmm. right? We have approach motivation, we have avoidance motivation. Everything is about that duality, right? And those competing forces. And it's kind of the same thing. And so what we wanted to do is unpack basic human truths so people understood both sides of the same coin, right? What are those barriers? Once you understand those barriers, huh, can you flip it? Or is there a way to work around them and motivate and activate change? So we have nine principles. And I would say not one principle is the be all end all, right? It's not the secret sauce of like, oh, you, if as long as you pay attention to this principle, that's it. It's really the nine principles gives you a gestalt, right? And again, why people may be resisting and what we can do um, to, to, to flip that. Um, typically my job and Behavioral, and from behavioral science perspective is to look at what, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to help physicians really understand this new uh, medication, um, indication that's coming out? Are we trying to understand, are we trying to get um, patients doing well on a prescription really to stick with it for a couple more months? Um, once we understand what we're trying to do is to pick out the most relevant principles that we really need to be paid attention right. to going forward. So uh, one of the one of the examples you cite in the book is, uh, I, I, if, if I, correct me if I'm wrong um, with any of this, is that one in three people who are given a prescription at a doctor's office leave the doctor's office and never fill the prescription. Is that, do I have that right? Yes. Yeah. So um, how, how do you, let's take that as a use case. How do you change that behavior? Right. So a couple things is we have to unpack, right? Depending on the therapeutic area, what what are those what are those barriers? Okay. Right. So again, we kind of think about is it a functional barrier? You know, cost. Um, one of the things that we do know about cost is um, I know our industry tends to focus very singularly on like a copay, one single copay. In reality, that's not how people make decisions. They make 
decisions based on the gestalt of what their overall pain for the family for healthcare. Mm-hmm. So one, we need to be looking for the right data to set, to figure out what that tipping point is. So that's like a functional, um, a functional area. Two, like I said, when I started, how many times have you agreed to do something, right? And you have no idea what the cost is. Right. So the lack of transparency, right? And, and setting realistic expectations for someone in the doctor's office we know. Right, that that goes a long way, um, and because it's about getting buy-in, right? Somebody can easily say sure, right? And even at that moment in time, they might think, "Yeah, I'm gonna do it," but then you know, you go away, you have time to re-examine, and then all the things like well, that consequence—that's pretty far off. I got these problems right here, right in the immediate, right? All those kinds of things start unfolding. So what we need to do is start chipping away. There is not just one answer, but again, putting it together and and hitting all fronts, right? Hitting on, do they believe the medication is going to work? What was their mindset going in? Are they coming from a, a, a therapy that didn't work? And so they're kind of skeptical, right? Very different mindsets mm-hmm. when people have failed one therapy going on to a next, right? So it really does start kind of getting to getting very personalized even from a segmentation standpoint and groups of people past experience very much dictates what i'm going to expect in the future got it uh we're talking with kathleen Starr um from cineos health um kathleen you said that there are uh, basically nine principles that you outline in the book um, and I, you know, I don't want to do a deep dive on all nine. I mean, I'd love to do a deep dive on all nine, but um, uh, time does not allow that. But I, I would like to go through them um, and, and talk a little bit about each one. And, you know, if you uh, if going through this and you like great examples come to mind or if you think like this is my favorite one or, you know, hey, we could skip this one. It's, it's not that big a deal. Um, I, I would like to go through them, though, because I, I, I find this fascinating and I'd like to know the pillars that your work is based on. Okay, great. So the first one is, I think, is really fundamental to building empathy for this for people in this context, right? And it's core psychological, emotional, social needs, right, really um, propel us. So we all know that we're motivated by our physical needs, like I'm hungry, so you go for food. Well, we our psychological needs function very similarly, right? So they propel us, they're that drive. But here's the deal. We are really driven to get those needs satisfied. So in situations where we see an opportunity to get a need satisfied, like I need to feel independent and have autonomy. I need to feel secure. I need to feel that I belong to something, right? Social belonging. Um, I need to feel like I have mastery and I'm competent. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the core needs. So we're driven to get those filled. But when we face situations that conflict with those, guess what do we do? Move away, right? There's that avoidance. You There's were that about. avoidance, exactly. And so we need to understand that if the healthcare system or what they're going through um, with their health is conflicting with those core needs, there's a real um, opportunity then for them to move away. Um, so one of the needs that I think is really um, in, 
important is security. Um, and again, I need to feel safe. I need to feel that I'm safe and I'm well taken care of. So you can see how that's super relevant in healthcare. And healthcare, it's it, the the safety is expressed by health. Yeah, I'm healthy. Yes, and my doctor's taking care of right. me, or the nurses, or whatever. Um, but what happens is in a situation where I don't know what to expect, I'm in a novel situation, and um, it's uh, there's a lot of ambiguity and a lot of choices. What happens is I get that really shakes my sense of security. I have a great everyday example that I think everybody can relate oh, to. Oh, let's hear it. So, and this actually happened to me a couple months ago. Um, I took my car to the mechanic. All right, I'm sorry. I don't like to do that because I don't know anything about cars. And of course, and you feel we- like you're being able to be ripped off. And, right. Yeah, right. And I don't feel cared for. And I think, <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, it was super interesting. So I did, I took it in and I got a call. I got a text. Your car's ready. In that text, I could um, click on a link and that link showed me a video of the actual mechanic going around and doing the inspection on my car of like, oh, your brake pads are this and the norm and the safety, it should be that and blah, blah, blah. And give us a call and and let's talk about what um, what you think you wanna have done. What? That level of transparency. I mean, I was all in. I completely now trust, right, that mechanic. I didn't, even though I, you know, I still don't know anything about cars. One, transparency made me feel that I was being treated fairly, which is another really important thing. Two, given some autonomy and like, you're an adult, you can make some decision on what you want and not being told. It's huge. So that is just a really good example of, again, explaining what to expect, how that kinds of that kind of transparency can really go a long way of establishing that trust, helping somebody feel secure. And this mechanic is in Kansas City. It is. Yeah, so I'm probably not going to be bringing my car to Kansas City. Well, you I know, <laughs> I but here's the thing, I was so fascinated by that. It's actually a service that it's a platform that's a t- technology firm created and they sell it to um what do you call it? Dealers it's across the a, country. Such a great idea. Seriously, right? right? Like, talk about taking away a friction point. It's something for uh, physicians to keep in mind, right? Yeah. So, so the, that's one. That's right. one. So the the second principle is actually of all this. This is the one that uh, snagged me the most. Uh, principle two: mental processing is limited. And my mental processing is highly limited. Talk about that a little bit. So and what all, all of ours are, right? So I think that what we have to realize is that we just have a limited capacity to process information, what to pay attention to it, and process information deeply, okay? Um, you know, there's been ton. we know so much about from the neurosciences. So if you, hate to tell you, but if you are, if you think you're a great multitasker, <laughs> Steve, you're not. Right. And I know that. (laughs) Right. I mean, we know more and more about that. And the implication. So, again, the implication is now walk in a patient's shoes or a physician's shoes and think about all the kinds of information that they need to process and come to really good, really important. Right. Decisions. It's a lot. And we know that the brain. Right. Can only handle so much. So what do we do? 
right? So we have an we have a mechanism, right, that that helps us adapt to those situations, and it's really efficient, but it's not necessarily accurate. So what we do is we tend to rely on our gut, right? A gut feeling, a gut feeling of is this right, and that typically comes from whether we feel like it's familiar, right? And so it gets into principle um, also four about how we really understand and make sense of the world based on our past experiences. So when we encounter something, new information, right, we rely on a rule of thumb or a gut feeling, something that just tells us, yeah, that's, that's good enough. So we're constantly uh, satisficing our decisions, right? So that means basically people are saying, well, I've been here before and the last time I was here, this happened. So this is what I should do now. Yeah. And it's like instantaneous. Right. It's your gut just says that feels comfortable. So you don't pay and you don't stop and start weighing all the pros and cons. How reliable is that? Um, it gets us through life pretty well, mm -hmm. right? On uh, a day-to-day -day basis, you could not function if you had to stop and think about every single thing you did and deeply should i take a glass of drink of water right? right you just that you you couldn't function but when it comes to the healthcare content it's very efficient and we're wired this way but it's not necessarily accurate what happens is there's lots of room for errors and that's where it lots of room for using our own um mental models and our history bringing that forward in a sense um, that isn't even helpful. So an example of that would be um, when uh, patients, a lot of patients who are di uh, have diabetes, mm -hmm. after they've, they've been on um, oral medication, it's time for that first injection. And a lot of times now it's not insulin, but their mental model is injection equals insulin. If I'm on insulin, that means I'm way down right? I, my disease is really bad. I'm going to lose a limb. And it's very scary. It's a misperception. That's not at all what it is, but that's what their gut tells them, right? For physicians, it could be um, um, picking up on availability bias, right? When you see something and it's top of mind, mm -hmm. we tend to think it, there's a lot of it. it it's really common and right. we overgeneralize. So those kinds of biases um, intuition, rules of thumb, um, can cloud our decision making. I want to make sure that we um, that we don't forget principle three, which is uh, irrational shortcuts guide decision making. And that's exactly what I'm talking right. about. It's those irrational. Right. Um, and and the thing is, they aren't necessarily irrational. I don't really love that word because again, if we look at it, it's just the way we operate. It's an, an efficient way that our brains can process the information and have to make judgments all the time. Right. However, in certain cir circumstances, what happens is we aren't paying attention to the right information. We aren't deeply processing right new information. We aren't paying attention to it. So it can make us make um, bad decisions or decisions that are, I don't want to say bad, less optimal Understood. decisions. Um, principle five. Self is a social phenomenon. This, yeah. I think I have to think this is a really important one in the healthcare context. Yeah, it, you know, and, and yes, it is, definitely. And so the whole idea is that our reflection of who we are 
um, is based on other people, right? Our identity is based on the feedback we get from others. Um, whether we belong to a group, right, and mm -hmm. identify with that group. The feedback we get from other people, whether our behavior is within the, you know, the range of acceptable or not, it's constantly, we're always comparing ourselves to others. That's how we form our identity, what's right, what's wrong. And so what happens is when, we, when we're in unfamiliar situations, right, where do we go? So yeah, we've got a gut reaction, but then we're really good at scanning the social situation. Who do I know that's, that, that has been in this situation, mm -hmm. right? What would my in-group think? What would my family think? How would somebody, how, have I ever seen um, an example of this? Now again, I'm talking like our brains are that slow. It, they aren't, but they're, they're scanning right. for information constantly. So that must have, um... Uh, that must have um, some connection to healthcare communities, particularly online healthcare communities. That, that like, um, you know, if you get a diagnosis of say diabetes, uh, type two diabetes, um, you know, and you find yourself in a forum with uh, with other uh, diabetes patients, you're getting some of the feedback about who you are. You now identify that way. Right. So one, it gets back. It's, you know, these are all interlinked. It gets back to um, helping us feel like we belong to something. It also takes some of the risk and the ambiguity out of things. Again, I, I can observe what other, and vicarious learning, what are they doing, right? Um, and help us make some judgment calls. Um, that way. So it comes back to security. It helps you feel feel secure. Secure, right. yeah. Um, I, I don't, uh, I wish we had more time um, to talk about the next three principles. Uh, number seven is context is critical to our habits. Yes. So, okay. Um, so you have a couple concepts. Motivation, right? That's the drive, right? Those are, those are from, from our needs, right? Is that drive. And then you have goals, which are the mental representations of what we want to do, right? I have a goal. I want to go to the gym. You told me right. I want to walk from the from the parking lot, right? Right. Um, and then we have context, right? It's all the cues around us, and that is real, really critical in terms of forming a habit. A habit, at its um, purest definition, is when you engage in a behavior and you don't even think about. It. Oh, right? wow. Okay. You aren't thinking about it at all. A routine is, I'm thinking, I still need to remind myself, right? But a pure habit is you don't have to think about it at all. So if you've ever talked to uh, like a smoker, a lot of times when they have a drink, they don't even realize, right, that they're going for a cigarette, right? It's it's so it's so much of a habit, that cue. Um is so powerful, the environmental cues. Right. And what happens is when you go to create a routine, right, and hopefully maybe it turns into a habit, is you need to set up your environment. You're gonna be um, setting up your environment to be those cues for you. That's why when, let's say you've been exercising religiously, you're doing so good, and this is me, and then I go on a business trip, and although the gym clothes are in the bag, I'm not in my context, right? I'm not in right. my, and it's just enough. Why? I don't know. It's just enough that I don't have enough. It doesn't cue me to really go and take that extra and, you know, get the gym clothes out. 
See, I always thought that the drink bone was connected to the smoke bone, which is, <laughs> which is why those two went together like that. Yeah. Um, now I know. Um, principle eight is, is that we constantly redefine normal. That's really interesting. Talk a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, and, and, and it's really interesting, especially in the healthcare, because people kind of forget this. We are such adaptable. Human beings are so adaptable, which is great. We're, we're born to be resilient. So, you you know, people, um, I've worked with uh, patients and families that have had like ALS. Oh my gosh, I mean, it's a devastating, right, uh, condition. But what's really interesting is people adapt psychologically to things. Right. So we start um, redefining normal. Right. We start seeing, huh, other ways, other benefits that we have in our life. And in fact, Hmm. um, if you ask people to rate what you think somebody's quality of life is, there was an experiment on somebody that's on dialysis and actually asked someone on dialysis their quality of life. People project that, oh, my gosh, their quality of life would be so much um, lower than it actually is, right? Because people redefine their normal, they get to a new status quo, and they go about their life. Why that matters to us is because um, in healthcare, people can start satisficing, right? And not realize, oh, you're putting up with a lot of side, side effects that maybe you should talk to your physician about, right? Mm, it could yeah, be better, yeah, right? Right. Right. The other place where where it matters is when we think about how we want to engage um, patients is um, bombarding people. Right. We tune it out. Right. We quickly habituate to things. Right. And so I think that it's a good it's a good reminder that we're always going to be creating that new normal. And and we have to sometimes shake it up a little bit to break through. Great. the the new normal um yeah it's almost like a training effect yeah yeah love Um, that the 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 final principle number nine um wow motivation is fleeting yeah so this is one of the fundamental um i would say myths um that i that um i try to bust is oh once oh yeah okay we're going to motivate the patient to go talk to their doctor about Okay, that's one point in time, right? But what do we know is that motivation constantly dissipates over time, right? Other things, people start thinking about other things. And this is even amongst people that are really motivated, mm-hmm. right? It just kind of drips and drabs away. We just, it's a leaky bucket. So what we need to do is continually think about how we're gonna, how we f- refill the bucket. Some of the reasons why people, it leaks is because people discount the future, right? They get real focused on the immediate. Let's say immediate. And so if there's not an immediate reward, they aren't thinking about the long-term consequences. We're really bad about that. So so again, motivation takes a step down. Um, and so I think that, again, so people don't think it's a failure. I always say uh, willpower is a myth. Like, we don't, you know, that's really fleeting. Right. So it's not um, that we can't hold people accountable for that, because, again, it's just kind of fundamental human truth. So uh, how do you do you have an example of a healthcare situation where you continue to uh, c- continue to you know, tweak 
motivation? Yeah. So, so motivation is one of those things that's um, important to think about what, where we are in the behavioral journey, right? When somebody's starting a new behavior, right, the, those motivations are very different. What motivates people is they believe in the behavior change. They feel that they are competent and they can go through it. Once you start the behavior, what motivates people, right, um, to continue the behavior are things like, am I satisfied, not just with the outcome, but with my behavior? And and also, um, does it align with my identity? So some of the things to do in motivating people in the long run is reminding them, one, from where they came from, right? How bad was it before? And also aligning it to some higher order goal. But this, you're doing this because you want to be the best mom. So that is like, that doesn't necessarily work in, when you're starting the behavior. It gets a little bit more granular. But when you're trying to keep people motivated, those kinds of um, tactics work. This is, this is great stuff. I, uh, I wish that we had an hour to talk about this. Um, because it's it's absolutely fascinating, and the use cases, um, you know, the like how, like you know, once someone starts to take, say, a prescription uh, or a medication, and their condition becomes chronic and manageable, and they think I'm fine, I can stop taking it. I guess the classic case with that is antibiotics. I feel better, so I'll stop taking yes. it. Um, and then you, then you get sick again. But um, anyway, I. Uh, I guess I have one final question for you, and that is um, that is about habits. When you uh, got here, before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about uh, I'm trying to, to make a habit of walking the mile from my house to the train station and back again uh, at night. Um, how, how long do I need to do this until it's actually habituated? Do you have any, any sense for something like that? So, okay, so probably I'm going to say it's never going to be a habit, a true habit. I think that what you could hope for is build it up to the point where it's a compulsion, right? It's like you have the behavior, then you have kind of like a ritual, like I do this every, and then a compulsion is, oh, I feel yucky if I don't do it. Right. Right. So, so that you have a negative feedback if you don't do it. You're, whenever you have a chance to reevaluate your decision, it's really hard to create a habit. That's why I always say, uh, you know, really taking a prescription medication, I have a struggle always saying, oh, we're really going to create a habit because every 30 days, someone has, they can reevaluate whether or not they think that's working for them. So um, I would say that if for a few weeks, doing it in this context and then testing it out, change your environment a smidge and then go another. Once your environment shifts, you can't. You don't start from scratch, but you start lower again. Okay. So if you really want, it's not just creating it. So you um, a routine, but you want that routine to be flexible, so you'll do it in different situations. Understood. Um, check back in two months, and I'll let I you will. know. I'll let you know how it's uh, how it's going. I will say though that um, counting steps, um, like having a watch that counts steps, is. A, an oddly powerful motivating factor. Okay, so it it's one of the fundamental things we've known in psychology probably for 50 years is that when people monitoring their behavior, if they also get feedback on it, that's a huge powerful 
right motivator. Now this next step from that is like you're getting that feedback is now linking that right to something that you also you enjoy because people have been, you know habituate from just the step right. thing. So then what does that feel like? What does it feel like when it doesn't? And then challenging yourself, right? Now I'm gonna I'm gonna strive to do this. Um, even on weekends or whatever, some other thing. So you're constantly kind of being challenged to keep it up. Right. Um, maybe I could connect it to eating candy or something. I don't know. <laughs> Rewarding is good. Probably not. I'll probably find uh, maybe carrots and celery instead of candy. It got me in this problem in the first place. Um, my guest has been Kathleen Starr, PhD, the Managing Director of Behavioral Sciences and Insights at Cineos Health. Kathleen, thank you so much for coming by. This has been absolutely fascinating. Great way to spend part of the afternoon. Thanks so much. It's been fun. You've been listening to the MMNM podcast. I'm your host, Steve Madden. Check in with us again next week for another installment. Thanks for listening. Thank you.